2004 was a huge year for Jensen Button. Not only did he emerge as a consistent frontrunner in Formula One with BAR, but he dodged a bullet when his planned move to Williams for the following season was blocked. Series 3 of Bring Back V10s is here and we are starting with a big episode, which will of course feature plenty of talk later on about one of our most requested topics, quite often simply referred to as Buttongate. I'm Glenn Freeman and of our two guests for the start of the series, we'll kick things off with the one who had far less impact on Buttons and BAR's success in 2004, and that's Scott Mitchell. So Scott, that's a a massive welcome for you there. You were a big Jensen Button fan at this time and you get the first hit at the opening question of the series. And before you answer about what's your first memory that comes to mind when you think of Jensen Button in 2004, just to let you know, I'm making a bet with myself that I know what you're going to say. Well, don't worry, you're not you're not unfairly downplaying my role in that year's success. I can I think the fact that I was really willing Jensen on to win at Monza, and the fact that he didn't proves that I, my powers were fundamentally limited. Um, I was going to try and trick you and pick his fight with Fernando Alonso at Hockenheim during probably his best drive of the season because I can just I can remember and picture that sequence of attempted passes almost perfectly it was an awesome fight but I kind of made a rod of my own back with this because I have publicly declared my love for his pole pole lap at Imola um a fabulous lap and for a button fan who worshipped Imola as a circuit like there's nothing cooler so I I it would have been the most unsuccessful prank or, or, or bit of misdirection of all time if I tried to, to, to deny my affection for that lap. That's good. That means I won my bet and I can pay myself £10. Before we get into this story properly uh, and bring in our second guest, a new series means a new chance for you to get your questions in for our final episode. Or should I say episodes? Because who are we kidding? We always end up doing two. But you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005 by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Alternatively, or as well, you can leave us a five-star podcast review and submit a question there as well. We've been blown away by how many of you have left us a review, and I do make sure I read them all. So I'll give a quick shout out to some of you who left us a review towards the end of Series 2, and I didn't get to mention previously and that includes Andy Villa GB, Garfi489, and Penfold1983, among many others. Thank you all so much for supporting the show so far. We're way past 200,000 downloads now, and it's great to see how many people are going back to the beginning of Series 1 when you discover the show. Make sure you get your questions in early if you've got one that you really want answered at the end of the series. We always end up with too many, uh, and as I say, I'm sure we're going to commit to two episodes and we still won't quite fit them all in. But let's bring in our second guest now, and I'm delighted to say we are joined by a man who did contribute a fair bit more to BAR's success in 2004 than Scott did, and that's the then team boss, David Richards, who is now the chairman of ProDrive and of Motorsport UK. David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, today. Whenever we start these conversations off, the opening question is pretty straightforward, which is just when you think of today's subject, so in this case, Jensen Button and BAR's 2004 season, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it, as it happens, I was um, uh, we've just been doing a bit of redecoration up in my top floor of the house and my study, and I've been hanging some old photographs and pictures that reminded me of that year. One of them, which was the... Um, 
a lovely picture that from the, all the team and a, an award that we got that year for the most improved team. And it was a sort of, it was quite a, a stellar year in many respects. In um, I think people didn't quite expect the performance that we gave during the year. People had underestimated Jensen, in my opinion. And um, but I think actually we'll probably come on to this later that people didn't really understand where the real performance came from. This is this is a fascinating year and subject, certainly uh, behind Ferrari, I think we can say. But 2004 was always going to be very different for Button and for BAR because it was the team's first year without Jacques Villeneuve, who the team had been built around in the beginning. And Jacques was now gone. And that meant that the team was looking towards Jensen to become its spearhead. But David, you said at the time, there were drivers who get themselves involved in all aspects, who have an opinion, who make their presence felt, who are willing to be part of decision making within the organisation. That's the role he's got to stand up to now, being a leader instead of a follower. That's the role I'm expecting. We'll, uh, we'll come back to Jacques later on, but looking at Jensen, how important was it for the next phase of your BAR master plan that Jensen emerged as the team leader that you needed? It was fundamental. Um, it, was, it was fundamental not just for himself, but for to galvanise the team. I inherited quite a dysfunctional organisation back in 2001. And um, we need to build it all. Teams are, you know, fundamentally success of teams is about the people and how they work together and they are making them one entity. And you see so many great organisations that are, are split up into factions. And I, I see that in so many motor racing teams, whether it's, sort of, you know, the engineering side versus the operational side and the drivers have a different view. Getting everybody all aligned and going in the same direction is uh, is the number one priority. And the whatever you like to think about the role of a team principal or anyone else in the team for that matter, the most influential person above everybody else is your driver. It's the driver that the press listen to. It's the driver who creates the um, the culture and the the ambience behind the, the atmosphere behind the team. And so you have to work very closely with the driver to make sure he's on message and he's working alongside you. And uh, we spent a lot of time with Jensen at that time. And, uh, he, and to his great credit, he he'd matured. This was a sort of, you know, I, I've seen them all before, you know, we sort of, you know, uh, we've just been recently celebrating the 25th anniversary of Colin McRae's success. And, and he was no different. And Richard Burns following behind him was no different. They go through this early period of, you know, as my own kids have done, I've seen it many times over. And then when they find a bit of maturity about them and they understand their role in the team and how important they are and how they need the team around them to get the success, that's what suddenly happens. You saw it with Schumacher. That's why Schumacher had so many great victories back in his time. He was a great builder of a team. And um, so we explained this to Jensen at the time. We explained the, the different responsibilities that fell on his shoulders and how this was a, a different world from the one he'd entered the team in a year earlier. Yeah, and we'll come back to some of the things you tried to uh, get Jensen to uh, improve on and maybe develop himself off track as well. But high high hopes and high expectations uh, from the moment the car launched and then the car was flying in pre-season testing uh, BAR smashed the Barcelona lap record although the team did admit that was a low fuel run but there were some dismissive comments from uh, teams such as Williams and McLaren 
And even Kimi Raikkonen said he would not put much money on VAR. But Jensen remained insistent things were going genuinely well. He gave an interview to Autosport magazine in late February where he said, we are just running through all of our programs and somehow we always manage to be quick. Going back to that launch, as soon as the covers came off, David, you were talking about taking on the established top three of Ferrari, Williams and McLaren. I know that uh, Jeff Willis and Jensen were also talking about scoring podiums from the off. And this carried on all the way through the build up to Australia. But one question I have to ask about your confidence pre-season, David, uh, apparently you literally put your money where your mouth was and you bet a £1,000 on BAR to win the first race. Now, what makes this story even more amusing to me is that apparently you tried to place that bet online, but your bank rejected it because it looked like suspicious activity, which at least tells us that you didn't have a gambling problem at the time. And then you sent some mechanics down to a betting shop in Northampton to place the bet with cash. And you got Jensen to win at 33 to 1 and Takuma Sato to win at 66 to 1. So I have to ask, David, are all the details of that story true? Well, you know, the um, so many things disappear in the mists of time. But um, I, you know, there's a, the, the, there's a gem of truth behind it, actually. It's um, I, I, I don't remember sending it down to betting shops, but I do remember having a wager about this. I think seem to remember uh, just sort of to, to show confidence in the team and to sort of, it was more of an internal gesture. It's sort of, come on, I'm going to show, show you what. But I think the bit that everyone's missing here and why it turned out so strong and we have to give credit where credit's due. I need to turn the clock back six months and um, and start in September the previous year, maybe October the previous year. Um, the we uh, we've been with Honda for a couple of years, um, and Honda were improving all the time. Um, but uh, as one knows, just pure power from a from an engine is not to all you need. You need to have the packaging, you need to get the aerodynamics right, you need everything, the weight, the fuel consumption, all the ingredients have to be right. So the engineers came to me and Jeff Willis and some of the other engineers said, look, David, um, we don't seem to be making a lot of uh, headway with the um, uh, the Japanese on, on the engine side. They're sort of, you know, we're not really working as one unit here. We've got some of them working with us, but they don't seem to take on board the, the compromises that they have to make to help us in our task. And uh, could you help us sort this out? So I went to Japan and I saw the senior team there. I saw the people there. And I said, look, um, we, you know, winning Formula One races is about all collaborating and all playing our part. And um, sometimes we have to compromise. And when the engine uh, with the rest what has to comprise the rest of the car so we're going to be looking for an engine that is more compact than the current engine that's less fuel consumption and, and probably lighter than the fuel current engine and I was told well we've been told by the president we need the most powerful engine in Formula One we are going to deliver a thousand horsepower engine and that is our goal and all the other considerations are your problems because you're responsible for the chassis so I went back to the team and I sort of said to the team, I said, look, guys, um, I've got a bit of a problem here. I don't seem to have made much headway. And we were scratching our heads working out what to do. Because clearly the, the the way in which you needed to be successful, as we've seen subsequent to that with relationships with Mercedes and other teams where it's a, it's a really sort of hand-in-glove relationship, 
um, wasn't going to be the case for us. And so it just happened that I, because of my relationship in rallying, and uh, I had a very close relationship with Michelin, um, that came out in Japan at the end of the previous uh, 2003 season to um, really sort of outrage from Honda, who said that, you know, I was sort of, you know, this was ridiculous that they should, we should change from Bridgestone, the best tyre company from them, and obviously a very competent tyre company, but they supplied the rest of the field and we need to differentiate ourselves. And um, so that was one of the first thing, reasons I fell out with Honda over, uh, over those matters. And um, we changed to Michelin. And uh, quite frankly, uh, the team did a great job. Jensen did a great job. The engineering was great under Jeff Willis, but the differentiating factor was, in fact, the Michelin tyres. Now, Scott, going back to what we talked about briefly there about the pre-season expectations, you and I have looked through the, the notes that we've researched for this, and BAR were constantly talking themselves up. We're used to now teams talking themselves down all the time and playing everything down. How refreshing is it to look back at a team that was willing to say, yes, we're in good shape and we're up for it this season? Yeah, uh, I, I love that. I hope that David turns out to be the successor that Toto Wolf's grooming at Mercedes and has a glorious return to Brackley <laughs> just so that we can have some boisterous declarations of 23-1-2 finishes and, and stuff like this. Um, I don't know whether cautions become the name of the game because maybe more people now answer to corporate paymasters or maybe the world's just become a bit more boring, but you can't really kid the people inside your team. So they'll know whether you're talking up a shed or or downplaying a masterpiece. And some people will respond better to one thing that, than the other. But it was I bet it was great motivation for, for the team at putting the car together to hear Jensen wax lyrical about how it was all coming so naturally and you know talk from Honda of a lighter and more powerful engine and especially when you get the bitterness from the people at McLaren and Williams, I bet that really fired everybody inside the, inside the team up. And I'm sure people would have enjoyed it just as much if, uh, if David and everybody wanted to play some games and said, oh, the car's looking in trouble, the, the Honda engine problems are serious and all of this, and then rock up in Australia in the first few races and blow the pants off everybody except Ferrari. Um, maybe that would have given David even kinder odds uh, for his bet. <laughs> but I love that kind of honesty. The raw enthusiasm and excitement when they're all talking about it. You're talking about podiums and maybe they could even fight for a win. That's, that's just good pre-season entertainment and it's authentic. And I, re and I do think F1 misses that in the build-up to the season nowadays. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, David, let's talk a little bit more about how you'd gone about overhauling BAR to get to this stage. You were brought in at the end of 2001 your initial job was to write the ship that had looked pretty listless for the most of the team's existence from 1999. Craig Pollock, your predecessor, had done well to secure the Honda deal for 2000, which we've talked about in a previous episode that we did about Honda's test car that never turned into a race team. But other than that, BAR had never lived up to its lofty expectations, certainly not on track. And in early 2004, we learned uh, that David had set up a self-awareness program at BAR and the drivers were a big part of this. Button said there was a big focus on everyone looking at their weaknesses, which he found strange at first because he was asked to fill out a form and list his weaknesses, and he did the typical racing driver thing of saying, I haven't got any. So David, you apparently had to take Jensen to lunch to explain what this process was really about and get across to him that it wasn't necessarily focused on making him 
better at driving round corners, I think was the quote you gave. Do you remember how that conversation with Jensen went to get him to buy into this process? I don't remember the specific conversation. I can remember the whole environment that we were in at the time. Um, I said earlier that we inherited quite a dysfunctional organisation. It was um, a great team of individuals, but they come together in a sort of uh, as a motley assortment from all different environments. And they never really gelled as an organisation. Um, you know, you, you know I, I don't want to, um, you shouldn't underestimate the the challenge that setting up a new Formula t- One team is from a greenfield site. And I know of very few, well, I don't know of any, quite frankly, that have started from zero and been successful in the first few years. I just think it's a nigh impossible thing to do when you look at the complexities of what you have to achieve. Um, so the complications around that were sort of, uh, uh, they'd gone through that gestation period. And when we turned up, I got a call from the chairman of British American Tobacco, who were the owners of the company, of the team. And we had a very close relationship because we'd won, uh, they'd sponsored me when Ari Bhatt and I won the world championship. They'd sponsored me through all my rallying program for winning with Subaru, et cetera. And he rang me up one day and said, look, uh, I'd actually pitched to run the team originally. Uh, they came to me five years, four years earlier, possibly in 98 or something around there, and said, we want to run a Formula One team. We decided we want a Formula One team. Um, are you interested in doing it? I said, yeah, very interested. That sounds like a great idea. I'd love to do that. Um, they said, it was 97, in fact. They said, um, okay, well, put forward a proposal. So did a bit of research, and I went round to the various things and came back to them and said, look, there are only four teams that have ever won a Grand Prix at this point in time. This is before Jordan had won. Um, there's Ferrari, there's Williams, McLaren, and there's Benetton. Now, you're not going to be able to buy Ferrari. I've checked Williams and McLaren aren't for sale, but I think we can do a deal with Benetton. So I said, look, um, my recommendation is we should go down and try and uh, and I've been to see the Benetton family. I went to see Luciano down in Venice, had a chat with them about it, got the gem of a sort of the structure of what we might be able to do, nothing confirmed, and went back to BAT and they said, look, you know, no, no, no. We have decided we want a greenfield site. We're going to start from zero. We're going to just do it a different way. We don't want to inherit a sort of a team sponsored by, I think they referred to them as a woolly jumper company. And so... Um, and that was that. That was so I got kicked into the long grass, said, no, we're going to do it this other way. We've got this superstar driver from Canada and we've got other people who have sort of know how to run it. And that's what we can do. So I'd always felt this was really a daft idea to start from zero and very expensive one. So when I got the call from Martin, he said to me, look, uh, I said, well, what's the, what's the brief, Martin? I need to think about this quite carefully. Luckily, I'd had a previous uh, go with Benetton for a year so I knew what I was letting myself in for and I we really laid down a few markers and said if we're going to do it we want to be able to do it our way and we don't want the restrictions that I'd worked under before and he said look there are three priorities the first priority is that um, we really need to stem the, the 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 flow of cash we've got no control over the budgets here it's just gone crazy secondly um, we'd like some results because we haven't got many points so far. 
And, and thirdly, we need to sell the team because we can't do advertising any longer. So those were my three priorities. And we had a five-year contract to deliver that. And, um, and that's what we set out to do. Um, and we just set about it like you would do in any methodical organization about how you build a team and how you sort of get everyone working together, how you look at yourselves and, you know, large corporates and you you identify your weaknesses, as you've mentioned, and you uh, and you just work at each element of the business until you have a cohesive unit that uh, all complements each other. And um, and it, it didn't happen overnight, as you, you've seen. It's, uh, it was a good two years of work before we started to see the the, the the benefits from it coming but it was um it was uh it was uh very rewarding to watch it happen and to watch the for me i always you know results are results on a on a racetrack but for me watching a team of people that really believe in themselves and really come together and sort of uh, uh, uh that is a real joy to me to see that happen and jensen said that once he understood the process he found it intriguing and he told the media before the Australian Grand Prix that after sitting down with his engineers to go through this properly, he found that he had quite a few weaknesses predominantly out of the car. But this had been a top-to-bottom evaluation of how BAR went racing, as you described there. And another of the key changes that was made from this process was for the drivers to join a call on the Monday before the race to discuss the programme for the weekend, because previously you'd learned that the drivers weren't told of any of the plans for the weekend, until they arrived at the track on the Thursday. Now, Scott, given how teams in the modern era of F1 leave no stone unturned today, how surprising is it to you to hear that a team like BAR wasn't doing this sort of thing already? Um, it's not surprising at all because I don't think it's a, it was a necessarily a BAR thing. I think it's just being closed off to that sort of thing is exactly how most of the world works, um, especially in Formula One. And I'd, if anything, I imagine what David wanted to do and what BAR tried to implement was actually ahead of its time, at least among the big, bigger organisations, because lo- lots of teams, even today, they, they think they've got a no-blame culture and they think that everyone's pulling in the same direction and they think they're fostering confidence and trust and all of these things, and 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 they're not, not, not as well as they, as, as they could be. Um, it's really easy to convince yourself that you've got the right working practices, especially in an environment where you're, where you're wired to believe that a weakness is exactly that. It's a weakness. It's a reason not to trust somebody or to hire them or keep them or whatever. And that's just poison for trust and confidence and working practices. But the smart people, they see a weakness as something that can be improved, maybe even turned into a strength. And then you lift the floor of the whole organization up. Um, and that kind of thinking can only come from the top. And then it, it trickles down. So you you see results instantly, but it, it also takes years to be properly effective and it seeps into the DNA of the team. And I, I bet there are people at Team Brackley now who were part of this program or its legacy and now think, oh, that, that doesn't go anywhere near as far as, as we go now. But it was a start. And that's really to David's credit and BAR for em- embracing it. David obviously being there at the time, probably better place than me to comment, but I know that nowadays when Toto Wolf talks about that mentality, he sort of jokingly describes it as like a tree hugging mentality. And it's something that people don't really buy into. And David, I bet when you were trying to do this at the time, there were a few people like Jensen who were really sceptical about whether it would work. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's how things start off when you start these processes. And remember, they evolve. Um, 
it's not just black and white and it's not sort of uh, all all solutions don't fit to all people either. Uh, but it's that sort of um, the principles apply across the board. And uh, and you're right. In those days, I can remember I can remember turning the clock back even further when I I went through a bit of a sort of, you know, uh, a moment a oh, long time ago now. And this was in our early days when I had, I suppose we probably were only about 50 or 60 people in our rally team in those days. And I came along, I, I, I found I was just snowed under. I just could not keep up. A bit more than that, probably 100. And uh, I came back after being away for a long weekend, having been pulled from pillar to post. And I got the senior management team sat down. I sat down with everybody and I said, look, guys, I've been having a bit of a think about this. We can't carry on. I can't carry on the way I'm going at the moment. It's just not going to work. Um, I'm just sort of, you know, I, I've got to delegate more. I've got to find better people around me to help you. And not better people, but I've got to develop you into doing the roles that I've been doing. And, and we've got to develop the organisation. It's no longer sort of just about me. It's got to be about us. And um, so I'm going to start this process now. And we're going to start to sort of go about it methodically over the next six months. And I remember one particular individual said to me some little time later, he said, uh, I watched the whole process from the sidelines. And he said, the first reaction from the majority was, this is another one of his crazy ideas. It'll be gone within a month. So <laughs> don't do anything about it. Just keep your head down and just say nothing. And we'll be back to normal in a month's time. Anyway, a month or two goes by and I'm still fixed on this concept and this idea that we're going to do. I must have read a book or something at the time. And um and uh, and and then everyone realizes, oh boy, oh boy, this is uh, this is taking off. I'm going to leave me behind. So then you go through a phase phase of anarchy as everybody does things that are way beyond the scope of what they're expected to do and outside their remit, and it's just chaos for a while. And eventually it settles down, and you know, but it, you go through these different phases as you get to that. And um, so uh, so doesn't happen overnight and uh, but there's no rocket science here and and I'm sure well I'd like to think that that process has evolved and continued in a in the same sort of vein if you like uh, subsequent to that yeah it's, it's a very quick history lesson for people who haven't maybe followed f1 for that long is of course the BAR team we're talking about here is now what we know as Mercedes same factory some some of the same people as well and Certainly some of the, I'm sure, the culture and work ethic of the people who've stuck around to make that team a success would have dated back to this era. But let's talk about, I think you referred to him earlier as the superstar Canadian, uh, David, Jack Villeneuve, who would have been a part of this process, I imagine, until he left the team. Uh, you were asked if you tried to engage him in this kind of self-awareness uh, stuff at the start of 2004, and you said that you spent a day on his boat in the south of France, saying it was the only way to go forward. Uh, you said Jack started to open up to the ideas, but he's been around a long time, and I think he was far more cynical about the whole environment we're in. Uh, you did say that maybe earlier in his career, he would have been exactly the right sort of person for that process, but you said by 2003, he's a very insular person, and it was very difficult to get him to be a real team player. I didn't mind the non-corporate bit, because you must still allow people to be individuals, you can't single out one individual and say it has changed things overnight because it hasn't. But sometimes you don't realise what a difference individuals make until they are not there. So by the start of 2004, how much of a change did you feel there was in the team and just in the atmosphere by Jacques not being there? Was it noticeable? 
Uh, I think it was actually noticeable, but it wasn't just about Jacques. Um, he was had his a small uh, enclave of people around him that, um, uh, and I think I've had subsequent meetings with Jacques, and uh, I get on really well with him now, and um, I, I like him enormously uh, because I, I just like his free spirit, if you like. Um, but he was surrounded by people that were giving him uh, really bad information and sort of trying to sort of create rifts where rifts were unnecessary. And that sort of tainted the relationship uh, at an early stage and never recovered uh, during that period. It has subsequently, I have to say. Um, but um, uh, no, uh, so when we went into 2004, it was a bit of a clean sheet, really. To, you know, Takuma was a breath of fresh air. Jensen was young and enthusiastic. And the team felt that this was like a new start and, um, and approached it as such, I would say. So, yeah, you know, it's, the influence of Jacques was imprinted across the team from the very early days, almost to the point where it was uh, perceived as Jacques's team. And when he left, that changed. Now we get to the first race of the year and Jensen was only sixth in the end, which was slightly disappointing. Although in retrospect, that was partly put down to a lack of experience with the Michelin tyres that we mentioned earlier. But it all came right next time out in Malaysia where Button scored his first F1 podium. But even at this stage of the season, Jensen's future was a huge topic of discussion, particularly for the British press. So ahead of the next race in Bahrain, he was quoted in the Times as saying, I'm already convinced that I'll be staying at BAR and I'm happy about that. And it was reported there was a clause in his contract that said he had to stay at BAR if they finished in the top five of the Constructors' Championship. There was obviously some uncertainty about BAR's future, as you mentioned earlier, David. Uh, Honda, at this point, wasn't signed up beyond 2004, but it was already working on an 05 engine. And then there was the ownership issue uh, that you discussed earlier. But Bahrain, of course, brought a second podium for Jensen. And then that prompted some discussion of where BAR really stood at this stage. Uh, Ross Braun at Ferrari described BAR as the coming threat of the Michelin teams because Williams and McLaren were struggling with somewhat radical car designs for 2004. Juan Pablo Montoya was less impressed. He said, I was amazed looking at the BAR celebrations because who won the race? Of course, it was Ferrari because it's a 2004 and Montoya added, it's nice to get a podium, but I was a bit shocked. We have to keep our focus on Ferrari and nobody else. David, in these early races, once you got on top of the tyres, we've got a couple of podiums in the bag already. Do you think it was clear, maybe internally and externally, how good the BAR was? Or did you feel there was still a perception that BAR was picking up the pieces left by McLaren and Williams dropping the ball? No, I, I, there was a, a newfound confidence in the team. and. Uh, it just kept coming all the time. It didn't, um, you know, it was always a feeling that the next race will be better again. Um, and we would sort of find further improvements and, uh, uh, and the team was gelling. It was a, it was a fun place to be in at the time. You know, when, when things are going well, you know, if you, I'm sure it's the same in a football team, cricket team, any team sport, any organization, when things go well, you just get on a roll and you can do nothing wrong. You know, you can make mistakes and it's quite interesting you know, they. You look at or, uh, race teams today, and you know when you get it. You know, when a team's working well, they get away with 
big errors at times because you can sort of it just gets masked. You've got performance advantage, you've got the sort of team spirit, everything, and it just sort of you're once you're on a roll, you've just got to keep that going. Yeah, and talking of that role, the next race was, of course, Imola, where Jensen took his memorable first pole position with a lap that is still replayed and reshared online very often, including by Jensen. Uh, he's very fond of the lap. And whenever people share that lap on Twitter, uh, I have a notifications feed for this show where people can use the hashtag BringBackV10s to contact us. And whenever that lap gets posted, the onboard of it, uh, my notifications feed gets flooded with people who aren't trying to talk to us. They're just saying bring back V10s. But we're going to stop off and look at the pole position lap slightly more than we did the first podium because Jensen feels this was a more special achievement. And in his book, he explained why. He said, qualifying is not my forte, racing is, but that was my first and I remember every moment of that lap. When I watch it back, what struck me was the sound of it revving its nuts off the whole way round. The circuit finished with a tough little chicane, bounce over the kerbs, across the finish line, and I knew right then it was a pole lap. The team came on the radio, screaming in my ear, and that meant the world. I was racing against the best drivers in the world, and I'd gone quickest, faster than Michael Schumacher in a Ferrari in front of all the Tifosi. It meant a lot, and that pole lap goes down as one of my all-time favourites. Now, Scott... You love this lap, I know you do, and you wrote a piece uh, last year ahead of F1's return to Imola about what it means to you. So very quickly, give us the short version as a fan of what made this pole position for Jensen so special. It's it's a lap that just triggers a really like visceral reaction from people. Like I think there are just some things that just... I don't know, spark something inside of you that, uh, and you just get really excited about it. And even I'm not... I'm really not one to lament the absence of screaming engines in, in F1. Um, I think I, I grew up around um, flame spitting, rallycross cars, Group B cars, that kind of thing. So so that was always my sort of uh, audio preference. <laughs> but that lap's got a really, really good soundtrack. And Jensen's helmet's bobbing all over the place on the footage, like even down the straights. And then you've just got this bonkers mix of aggression and poise through Tamburello. And that just sets up a properly committed and beautifully judged lap. And it and it beat Schumacher. It beat Ferrari. I, and as as a fan at the time, you you just can't underestimate how much everybody was cheering for BAR and Button because we were like, someone please end this. We've seen too much of it. And I, I think Michael ended up running longer in the in the first stint. I didn't care that the pole lap was might be down to a lighter fuel load. I don't care now. It was a mega lap. And I think every time you watch it back on 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 video, I just think you get a real sense of of just how good it was. And uh, Jensen leads the first stint of the race. He did make a good start, but Schumacher just sat behind him, waited for the BAR to pit uh, before him because Jensen had qualified with less fuel. But I think only there was only two laps between the pit stops. And then Schumacher pulled the pin with some quick laps before his own stop, went on to win comfortably. But Button and BAR were happy as they came away from Imola with a first pole position and a new best result with a second place. David, what were the emotions like behind the scenes that weekend? Was it delight at the pole in the second place or was there an element of deflation because once Michael got ahead he drove off into the distance no I think um anyone who's competitive uh goes into a race weekend hoping for a win and when you can sniff a win and it goes away from you it's a disappointment yeah I I, I did I did wonder if uh the the public pronouncements were slightly more positive than than the private ones we haven't spoken about Jacques Villeneuve for a good couple of minutes so let's put that right 
was after Imola, his former engineer, Jock Clear, who'd worked with him at Williams and followed him to BAR, said it was hurting Villeneuve to be missing out on the team's success. In Autosport magazine, Clear, who was now Takuma Sato's engineer at BAR, said, Jacques very disappointed not to be around when it all came good. It's not as if it never looked like it was coming good and he gave up. He knew it was going to take time. He didn't want to go to Renault in 2001, so he said, we'll stick at it. Now the fruits of our labour are there to be seen. He's frustrated. He'll be annoyed. Uh, David at the time was slightly dismissive of that theory, saying, I'll be very surprised if Jacques cared less. I doubt he's even watching it on television. He's that sort of character. He lives his own life, and I don't suppose he has any interest in F1 whatsoever at the moment. Scott, very quickly, looking at the backstory of Villeneuve and BAR, do you have any sympathy for him that he was there for that difficult first five years and then it came good straight after he left? I need to be, I need to make sure I don't sound disrespectful. Um, <laughs> I, not really, because I think we see this sort of thing in all sorts of projects. Um, and David sort of touched on it a little bit earlier about sort of <clears throat> the kind of person that, 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 that Jacques was and what he brought to it. Um, different people bring different skills and the skills that you need within a project uh, to keep it improving, they change as the project evolves. So by extension, you can need a different person to lean on at a different phase. So uh, a, in in the in the sense that um, lo- losing him was, I think, an important part of BAR flourishing. I, I I've met Jack a couple of times in my professional career in, since he when he briefly dabbled with Formula E. <laughs> he also turned up in Sweden in a random Porsche Carrera Cup race. His outlook towards motor racing seems very well suited to that of someone who sort of has his own freedoms and sort of can control what he does. Um, and I'm not sure that's what a team needed uh, at the time or BAR needed at the time. His his on-track performances were also not the driving force behind it anymore. And I also don't think that Jensen could flourish the way he eventually did if Jacques had still been alongside him. Obviously, Jacques was absolutely crucial to BAR's existence and its initial progress. Uh, and and he should, uh, he could and should still take a lot of pride in that. But I think the team's needs had outgrown what he could offer at that phase. Well, don't worry, that won't be the last time we talk about him in this episode, I can guarantee that. But let's get back to Jensen and BAR, because at the Spanish Grand Prix, while there was no official confirmation of Honda's support beyond 2004, David said that BAR's deal with Honda would continue for some years to come. Jensen took podiums in Monaco at the Nürburgring and Montreal. He then retired at Indianapolis, where Sato got a podium and was only fifth in France. By this point, we had the McLaren B-Spec car, Uh, which was working well. And Jensen was a frustrated fourth on home soil at Silverstone. And there he said, we came into this race expecting a lot more. We're not as quick as we were at the start of the season. Somehow we've managed to drop behind a bit, which is very disappointing. We've got a lot of work to do. We want to be scoring podiums through the season. We don't want to be taking a step backwards. We need to improve the car because it's not good enough at the moment. David, was Jensen right that BAR had maybe slipped back a bit by this point of the summer, or was this just the disappointment of his home race boiling over at this point? Yeah, obviously your home race is very important to you, and you build up in your mind through the early part of the season that I'm going to go to Silverstone with a car. You know, you've been on pole at Imola, you've sort of got podiums all the way along, you feel comfortable, and Inevitably, that teams ebb and flow during the season as people get new updates on their cars and people catch up a little bit and drop behind a bit. And um, that would have been disappointing for Lewis, uh, for sorry, sorry, for Jensen at the time uh, to turn up at Silverstone and and 
home crowd, big support, and only score a fourth. So I can sympathise with him for that. But, um, but, you know, these things, that's how it works. It just goes, you know, and you, and you have to ride the rough with the smooth, you know. I think it happened to him a few more times as well, even in the bronze season. But the upgrades for BAR were coming for the next race in Germany. And Jeff Willis told the BBC, it was crucial for us to be seen not to have lost momentum and that a number of mechanical, aerodynamic and engine upgrades were coming. He added that he would have liked to get them on the car sooner, but the team didn't feel they'd been fully tested yet. There was more good news for BAR at the Hockenheim weekend because this is where Honda announced that its deal with the team was extended to the end of 2007. And at the time, David, you said Honda's commitment provides enormous stability, which is a line we'll probably come back to in a little bit. And the Honda Chiefs spoke about ambitions of the project being to win races and the World Championship. There were rumours at this stage that Honda might buy a stake in the team, but during the announcement, Honda said nothing had been decided about that yet. Now, Scott, you're a bit of a Honda specialist when it comes to covering current F1. We all know... Uh, how easily Honda can get put off from F1. But with the BAR partnership starting to pay off in 2004, do you think this was one of Honda's easier decisions? Uh, yeah, I think it's got to be right up there. Um, only, a, only a car that was so good it was shocking Ferrari itself was denying BAR and Honda wins in, in 2004. It was really, really unlucky that BAR and Honda happened to be going up against the F2004, which was just a freakishly good good car. But but both team and engine supplier were they were reaping the the rewards for stability and extra investment i think my suspicion is from on the outside that the stuff that david was talking about earlier about honda's um uh what's the best way to put it <laughs> the difficulty they can have in deviating off their own path shall we say uh, is a long standing <laughs> it's a long standing and uh it's a long-standing problem and it exists to this day. It's something that Red Bull in the modern era has had had, had to wean Honda away from, from its McLaren McLaren stint. Uh, I think BAR was doing a really good job of, of getting Honda to sort of play ball a little bit more. There was clearly an opportunity or appetite for further investment in the future and embrace it as, a, as an out-and-out works team, not just a de facto one. So yeah, I think as far as committing millions and millions into Formula One go, this was probably quite an easy decision um, that BAR sort of made, basically made for Honda. <laughs> and those those upgrades and the good news and the feel-good story around the team continued with Jensen coming back from an engine penalty that put him 13th on the grid to finish second. And that left him only 13 points behind Rubens Barrichello in the battle for second in the championship. And Jensen said that a couple of races before that, he didn't think he could challenge Rubens but after Germany, he felt that their team had a really good chance. So at this point, you'd say everything looks rosy in the Button and BAR camp. At the end of July, Williams announced Mark Webber was joining it for 2005, and a whole bunch of drivers were linked to the second seat. Uh, I've done a lot of research. I've looked around all kinds of media reports, and this is the list I've been able to put together and see if you can notice the name that's missing. So the names mentioned at the time were Mika Hakkinen, who'd been linked to a few teams at this stage, including BAR, Villeneuve, who'd had meetings with Williams a few weeks earlier. David Coulthard, who was out of a drive at McLaren because Montoya was coming in. Nick Heidfeld, who was being shopped around by Eddie Jordan. I think EJ sensed a payday. And then you had Champ Car star Sebastian Bourdais, Williams' test driver Antonio Pizzonia, and even Weber's Jaguar teammate Christian Kleen. So nobody at the end of July thought Jensen Button was in the running uh, to sign for Williams. And yet on August the 5th, Williams announced it had signed 
button for 2005. Speaking in the announcement, Jensen said, I have every confidence that the massive investment in resources and the depth of talent at Williams and BMW provides the best platform for my future ambitions to be a world champion. Now, Scott, before we get David's recollection of that day, how shocked were you when the news broke that at the height of his powers, it seemed, with BAR, he was going to switch to Williams, who, let's not forget, were having quite a difficult season at this point? Uh, massively surprised. Um, I'm going to switch hats now from independent F1 journalist to person who was a fan of Button at the time. And I thought I thought Jensen was throwing his career away. <laughs> I assumed it was the filthy motorsport media stirring things up until I saw that it was <laughs> official and Jensen was talking about it himself. Uh, uh, yeah, really, really surprised. It Honestly, it felt like something that only made sense to Jensen and Williams. Now, David, we are going to go over this saga in... We'll, we'll stop off along the way at various points. So at the moment, we'll just focus on basically when you first heard the news. What was your reaction? What was going through your head at the time, given your your position and your closeness to Jensen? Um, I got a little sniff of um, something going on because um, uh, I'm always very, not always, but I'm always very cynical about driver managers. and. His management at the time had asked for a couple of meetings with me prior to then. And the line of sort of discussion around the sort of uh, the future and around our engine supply uh, was a little bit um, strange, put it that way. And I'd actually consulted with our lawyer, our in-house lawyer, Caroline, at the time to say to look, Am I being sort of paranoid or, or what's going on here? There's something that I'm not comfortable about the questioning. And I reassured myself that the contract that we had was robust in terms of our engine supply because um, that was what they hung their hat on to exit the contract. The fact that we did not, or they claimed we did not have an official supply of engines from Honda. And I think I can't remember the long time. I can't remember the wording and the way that the, the his contract had to be some like an official supply agreement with the engine supply, wherever it happened to be. Anyway, um, so, but nonetheless, it did come as a, a big shock to me, and you know, not the way you behave in in an organisation where you think you're you have a close relationship with people, and um, so it did when I. We got an official letter, I think, from, I think it might have been from Williams. I think it was the first thing I heard from it. We had a will, uh, an email came in for fax or whatever it was in those days uh, from Williams saying that um, they'd signed up. And we sort of sat and looked at this and tried to work out on what basis he thinks he thought he could exit. And, um, uh, and of course, we tried to track him down, so he better come and see us. And it was a few days before we finally got him into the office and I can picture the scene there I can't remember what was discussed but uh, clearly we were robust in our position and said, as far as we're concerned we have a contract the contract's filed with the contracts recognition board and um, we will defend that position and I let Williams know the same situation I sort of um, and we pushed back quite robustly. Yeah I think it's three days between the announcement and you finally getting the face-to-face -face time with uh, with Jensen it was announced on the 5th and the meeting happened 
on the 8th. Uh, Frank Williams explained his side of the story. Obviously, a lot of this played out in the media over the, the days and weeks that followed. Frank explained his side to the BBC, saying Jensen has been under option to BAR for some time. The option expired recently and Button's management called us to say the option was no longer valid and would we be interested in his services. I think BAR probably wanted to take up the option, but whether they've executed or not will come out in due course. Now, as you said there, David, your defence of this was was incredibly robust and and you went on the offensive, uh, on the defensive perhaps, in the media as well. You were, you were quoted in various places talking about receiving this letter. Uh, you referred to it as a very slim technicality that they were trying to use. Uh, you said it was ridiculous and we will challenge it. You can't go through life taking advantage of legal technicalities. You said the team was shaken and that you had to you had to now represent your 400 people who were working their socks off day and night for Jensen. And now he'd basically turned his back on them. Uh, you also said, I cannot believe that Jensen wants to leave. There's a hidden agenda here somewhere. Somebody's been looking for a get out clause and there is no doubt that Honda are committed. I can only hope that I can talk to Jensen and make sense of what was going on. BAR then released a statement saying that the option in question had been taken up on the 20th of July ahead of the deadline that was on the 31st of the month and that BAR, uh, Button's management company had acknowledged this. So BAR stated that it was the team's intention to enforce our current contractual position with Jensen. Let's talk about how it played out in public, David, and, and some of the, the very forceful comments that you made. Did you think it was important as the boss of the team to show even publicly how strongly you were willing to fight this? Yes, I think some things are sort of... Um... Uh, you know, best handled discreetly and behind the scenes. And uh, but once some uh, an issue like that becomes public, you have to stand shoulder to shoulder with your team and uh, make sure they know that you are actually fighting their corner for them. And uh, and that was my role at the time. And um, you know, we had had a meeting with Jensen's management, and as I say, I was a little suspicious about the way that their their questioning had gone at the time. And the way that they were prying into the the Honda situation, um, I was convinced that the, the the our arrangements with Honda actually satisfied the terms of Jensen's option, and so did our lawyers. But clearly, they thought there was a bit of a a legal loophole, and I think that's what I was alluding to when I didn't think it was of Jensen's making. You know, I think he was um, uh, very much led by his management, who, um, you know, I make no bones about it. I don't um, I don't have a lot of time for, for drivers, managers. I sort of, you know, they're a, uh, sometimes they're a necessity, but um, I, I respect the drivers who deal direct with us, in, and more and more that's the case these days. I've, um, uh, and, um, uh, and they've got to earn their crust, and they tend to be, you know, they're, they're looking for, they tend to be more disruptive at times than constructive. There are exceptions to that, I would say, but but uh, I've had a few of the worst in my time. <laughs> and, and in fairness, Jensen did uh, change management after this saga, which maybe tells us something as well. Uh, Frank Williams did say that uh, Williams had got its own legal advice on Button's situation before progressing. Uh, Jensen said, I'm no legal expert, but based on the information I have, I'm able to drive a Williams next year. Uh, he called that meeting that you finally had on Sunday, the 8th of August, uh, constructive. But he said that he clarified 
that his contractual position, he felt, allowed for the move and that he was not moving for money. He did say, I wish that my return to Williams had been less acrimonious in the light of the contribution I've made to BAR. Uh, Honda, of course, as we've mentioned there, was central to all of this. And it seemed that that was, as David's mentioned, the, the loophole that Button's management were clinging to. On the 10th of August, uh, Otmar Zafnauer of Honda at the time, now Mr. Racing Point to you and I, uh, was spoke, uh, spoke to the Telegraph. And he said, we were shocked and surprised. We were aware that other teams were showing interest in Jensen. We gave Jensen's management all the reassurance they had asked for. When we asked if the answers we provided were what he was looking for, they answered yes. That was so, the crux of the matter, yes. Exactly. So, Scott, based on everything we've gone through and researched for this, can you see any doubts or room for manoeuvre over Honda's commitment to BAR at this stage? You're, you're throwing to me as devil's advocate here, aren't you? <laughs> um, I Look, only, uh, only to a point. And even then, it's it's tenuous. It's like if you look at the situation this year, uh, in or look at the situation in 2020 with Red Bull and, uh, and Honda. Um, Max Verstappen signed a new long-term deal, but he said that the longer Honda didn't have an official commitment for subsequent years, the more he started to get the feeling there might be a problem. So from his side, it ultimately wasn't a surprise when Honda announced it was going to withdraw at the end of 2021, but. It's really different. It's a completely different situation in in 2004 because all of the uh, all of the assurances behind the scenes are are that Honda's going to continue. And then when you get to the the, the German Grand Prix, Honda's commitment is 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 solidified. Um, so I think it would have been easy to be convinced earlier on. It sounds like actually every effort was made to convince them. Better, I think, better direct communication between Jensen and the team maybe would have fixed that. But as we know, and as David has sort of alluded to, very, very deliberately, that decision from Jensen's management was taking place in a vacuum away from the people at BAR and Honda. And it's perhaps no surprise that when Jensen gets to the next race in Hungary, he's put up in the FIA press conference, which he basically no comments his whole way through. Um, but obviously everyone else is talking about this. And Montoya, who uh, we heard from earlier, uh, was at Williams at this point, but was leaving. And he was one of the more outspoken. He said, I'm amazed. I don't understand it. I think it's crazy. At the moment, BAR have got it. And although Williams can probably turn it around, BAR can keep going. At the last race, with a 10-place grid penalty, Jensen finished P2. How your mind goes to somewhere else after that, I don't know. Uh, unsurprisingly, Jensen doesn't devote much of his book to this subject. Um, but when he refers to choosing to leave BAR for 2005, he says, why? Bloody good question. And he says, the problem with BAR was that it was using Honda engines, but it wasn't a works manufacturer team. And we felt you had to be with a works manufacturer to win in Formula One. Williams was basically BMW Williams, and I felt they were a good bet for the future. Hands up, I was thinking of number one, hoping to move to a team that I thought could further my career and help me become a world champion. It wasn't as though I regarded BAR as a crap or even lesser team, just that I mistakenly, as it turned out, believed Williams might be a better option. 
So Scott, very quickly, is there some logic there from Jensen or was Montoya right to say he was crazy to want to leave VAR at that stage? I think he was trying to sort of apply some logic to it because his head was being turned. I mean, look at how cynical Montoya was about VAR at the start of the season. And now all of a sudden, Montoya is VAR's biggest advocate <laughs> by the middle <laughs> of the year. So I, I think the key thing, as Montoya put it at the time, was that the whole, whole team was built around him. So from the outside, it looked like a no-brainer to stay. When you consider the career choice that Button made in 2009 when he opted to join Lewis Hamilton's McLaren for 2010, that he clearly doesn't care about who the team's built around. He just wants to make the move that he thinks is best for him and it's a slightly selfish way of thinking. Um, and, you know, there was probably a cocktail of factors that made him doubt BAR, but only, again, because it was being fed to him that it would be in his interest to join Williams. So all of a sudden, those... Uh, those push factors to leave BAR, I guess, suddenly seemed a bit more real and solid in his mind, when in reality, those doubts were probably less than uh, less than convincing. Um, I think, as Jensen later admitted, it was a poor move to crack on this, uh, crack on with this, especially without any communication with the team, least of all uh, David. And I think Bernie Eccleston said at the time he had a moral obliga obligation to stay. Obviously, there's no such thing as that in elite sport, let alone Formula One, but he did... <laughs> He did have a moral duty to be more respectful towards the team than he was. Do you think that's fair, David? I think it's a fair summary of the situation. And I I put so much down to management. You know, drivers are, you know, they work in a little bubble. And they, in the main, there are some exceptions these days and sort of looking after their own affairs. But in the main, they, uh, and it probably is the right thing for them to do, concentrate on their focus on their job in hand. Just worry about driving and leave all the commercial aspects to the management and let the management perhaps make recommendations to them, if you like, of options to them. And it is a job for management to open up options. But, you know, they can also um, be, be more constructive and more helpful. And good management of uh, drivers is uh, a very positive benefit. But I've had... Uh, I've had experience of the other sort on a number of occasions. On one particular occasion, I remember very well, and it, it actually, it was another management team around Jensen. I got so frustrated with them, and they were so um, um, difficult to deal with and not uh, acting in, in my view, in Jensen's best interest. And I think Jensen, when he reflects on this today, I'm sure he will agree with me. Um, it got to the point where in one discussion I had them say, so, well, <clears throat> One thing you can't do, you can't keep us away from the, the track. You know, we've got, you have to give us two passes to the motorhome every weekend. We're going to sit there. We're going to be there. You're not going to get us out from there. You're going to see us every day when we walk in and out. We're going to be sat at that table drinking coffee and nothing you can do about it. But what they forgot was that to get to the motorhome, they needed a Formula One paddock pass. And I got Bernie to withdraw their paddock passes. <laughs> so that got rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a great lesson for them, I'm sure. Now, the prospect of Button leaving BAR potentially uh, leaves a very desirable seat up for grabs for 2005. Uh, Jensen was very close to David Coulthard, but Coulthard made no secret of being interested in it. Uh, but guess who else was trying to put his hat into the ring? We'll see if David remembers this one. It was, of course, Jacques Villeneuve. Jacques told The Sun, David and I have had our differences, but I believe we can put everything behind us. I'm sure we can sort things out and work together on making the team go forward because BAR are true front runners. 
By the end of last season, there were political problems coupled with few results on the track, but the problems I had with David are no longer an issue. He spoke to Autosport magazine as well, saying BAR needs someone that can adapt to the team very quickly. I've been with them through the hardest times, so it's unfinished business, and that means I'm very hungry. He said he'd not thought about money, but he'd be happy to drive for bonuses, and that his manager, Craig Pollock, the former team boss of BAR, of course, could be kept in the background. I think Jack used the phrase in the office, so there'd be no problems there. Uh, David, uh, you were asked about this at the time, and you t- apparently you told Jack that your priority was to deal with the Jensen situation first, which is probably a good way of kicking that can down the road a little mm-hmm. bit. What did you make of Jack putting himself in the shot window like this? Good opportunism or was he barking up the wrong tree? No, it's, it's what you would expect as well. Um, and, you know, well, we had reserve drivers. If I remember, Anthony Davidson was in the wings as well. Um, so uh, we had a number of options. But to be honest with you, I was dismissive of them all because my focus was solely on retaining Jensen. I had no reason to believe that we wouldn't retain Jensen either. And it was the start of September when Williams finally lodged its contract with the Contract Recognition Board, um, who were going to rule on this. BAR had done it a lot uh, sooner. But once that Williams contract was lodged, Jensen held a press conference in London where he finally spoke at length. He said all the same stuff about Williams being better equipped to fight for championships than BAR. And he even said that he didn't think BAR was going to have a very good season in 2005. Uh, On questions about Williams' dip in form in 2004... He said it was probably difficult for them because they had two drivers who were moving on for the following season. He said he didn't like the way the saga was being handled, but he was convinced he would be at Williams in 2005 and he wouldn't have put himself through all this otherwise. The CRB proceedings began in September, but the date for the ultimate hearing that would decide the outcome kept getting moved around and pushed back to October. During this time, Villeneuve committed Elsewhere, he joined Renault for the end of 2004 when they fired Jarno Trulli and then signed for Sauber for 2005. But things kept going well on track for BAR during this period. Jensen was third at Monza, second in China and third again at Suzuka with a a Suzuka special Honda engine, shall we say. And that helped BAR move 16 points clear of Renault for second in the championship with only 18 remaining up for grabs at the final round. Scott, after that little mid-season dip that we talked about, how much credit do both sides deserve here for putting together such a strong run of results when all this contract stuff was going on in the background? Well, I think as um, as David referred to before, I think it was a sign of uh, how confident BAR was or determined BAR was that you know this wouldn't uh, dissolve into like a bitter divorce because if you're confident that you're going to keep the driver on, the last thing you want is then for that relationship to to fall apart. And I I wonder if it also shows that it was less Jensen's side of things in terms of uh, prizing him or, or trying to leave BAR because if he was if he was dead set on leaving and uh, and and you know he wanted to get out of that team, I can see his head dropping more than it did. So. I think I think both sides did 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 a great job. It's a little bit similar to what we saw with Daniel Ricciardo at Renault in in, in twenty twenty. You know, you've you've got a potential situation there that could spiral out of hand. But credit to to, to, to both sides. And I think for for Button and Bar, you still had that. You know, the carrot at the end of the at the end of the stick was pretty pretty big, wasn't it? Trying to chase down Ferrari and have these results. So um, I think I think full credit to to both sides for showing. Uh, ongoing motivation professionalism and maturity because 
let's face it, professionalism and maturity can sometimes be in short supply in, in Formula One. <laughs> now, the, the verdict came on October the 20th after uh, three intense days of deliberation. And as David predicted, it ruled in favour of BAR. BAR said it was delighted at the news. Williams and Jensen both released their own individual statements that both included the phrase naturally disappointed. Uh, Frank Williams said, we took the view that Jensen was a driver worth challenging for and based on strong legal advice, we have no regrets about making a bid for his services. The CRB accepted a significant number of Williams' arguments, but nevertheless found against us. He added that Williams wouldn't challenge the matter any further, but he expressed a desire to sign Jensen for 2006. Jensen said he believed in standing by the decision, but added, I look forward to joining Williams in the future. Now, David, you spoke about this for the first time at the Brazilian Grand Prix, where you uh, accepted that BAR perhaps still had to convince Jensen that they were the right bet for the future. And you also said we'll certainly be more open and frank with each other and there's no getting away from the fact that there's a bit of repairing to do. So even though BAR had won the case and you remained committed to Jensen, did you think that maybe with all this talk in the background of Jensen and Williams saying, OK, well, we'll join up in 2006 instead, was there any sort of feeling that maybe this was still a temporary stay for Jensen for 2005? Uh, I guess there was. I don't specifically remember. But, you know, it's you're only as good as your last race. And so if you if the team had produced, well, the irony was, you know, of course, uh, normally you'd say if the team produced a great car in 2005, he would stay. And of course, you know, that wasn't the case in 2005 and he did stay. So uh, these things... <laughs> Don't always follow the natural pattern, but um, all you can do in these situations is behave uh, openly and transparently, and um, and talk to the drivers and and make sure you know. I I look back now and I can honestly tell you, I goodness knows how many drivers I've dealt with over my career. I just can't even think how many there have been at different times. And I would say, during the sort of the height of when I was really hands-on, I would say there wouldn't be a single driver that at some point in our relationship, I didn't fall out with them in the most monumental way. You know, like sort of really monumental because, you know, we're both competitive. You know, we both ultimately want the same thing, but perhaps we're not going about it the same way. And we both look at each other and, you know, it's, um, and most of these drivers were in their formative years. You know, they're young people, they're very uh, talented, but they haven't really, you know, they, they haven't perhaps got all the other skill sets one would expect of a sort of a maturer individual. And so I've fallen out with every, I, I would, you know, I could name them all now. And, and you know what? I could also name every single one of them today and say they're friends now because they've all come back over the years later, whether it's Jensen, whether it's Jacques, um, whether it's Colin McRae, all these different drivers have come back to me years later and say, you know what, God, I, you know, I wish I knew what I knew now. I'd have behaved slightly differently. And, uh, and I think that's uh, something you have to accept with young people and uh, in a competitive environment and, uh, and something you have to learn how to manage as well. Yeah, I think on more than one occasion during this year, you referred to Jensen as being a bit like a, a, a wayward son who had some some lessons to learn. And, and clearly he did. Now, uh, before we let you go, David, we'll just look at one last big piece of BAR news at the end of the year, because a month after this was all resolved, 
Uh, Honda bought 45% of the team. And as a result of that, you left, declaring we have delivered our five-year plan in three years. My job has been done. But you would say over subsequent interviews in the years that have followed that uh, while you understood that new ownership would want their own management in place, you did wish that you'd been given the chance to keep building the team under Honda's ownership. What do you think could have been possible if Honda had opted for stability on the team management side rather than a shake-up? Oh, it's uh, all rather hypothetical, isn't it, when you look back at these situations and um, you know, it, um, how would we have done anything differently? Would we have, you know... Ha- some of the things now you look back on and you lose memory of, of what it was all about at the time. And, and you know, as far as we were concerned at the end of that year, uh, Honda were very clear. They wanted full-time Honda employees in the business, not uh, contracted in from ProDrive. Um, they wanted a bit of a shake-up and do it, control it themselves. Um, there's no getting away from the fact that I was – um, I was very strong-willed about the way I wanted the team to go and how I behaved, and I wasn't prepared. You know, during the 2004 season, they would they had different views about how we should have done things, and I wouldn't listen. So I was uh, no, I was, uh, you know, I was contracted by BAT, BAT you know, the owners of the company, to to get the best result, and I didn't quite frankly listen to a lot of the things that Honda told me to do, and so we just got on and did our own thing. And uh, so I wouldn't have fitted in with that environment at all. And uh, so what would have happened next? Goodness only knows. I've, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's all too theoretical. Um, I still do wish that we had had another opportunity because um, it was just, um, was it just a sort of a one-off year that was just a bit of luck that we scored that 2004 season? People will judge us on that. I don't know myself. It was. Uh, I think we were building something. Quite frankly, I think we were building momentum. I think we could have built on that for the future. And I find it very rewarding now that the the team that we started off with, and albeit very different today, was the the gestation of the team that has seen Lewis Hamilton win sort of six world championships now. Yeah, I think you can certainly draw a line from uh, from BAR to to Mercedes today and and that's remarkable really but David thank you so much for for joining us and for taking the time uh to look back on this season in, in so much depth uh I think it's fair to say that while BAR and uh, Honda never hit the heights that uh, we saw in 2004 again uh, the team's done okay since then under different owners and uh, this was yeah it's great to hear so many first hand stories from a very a very memorable season. So, uh, yeah, we really, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. Good to speak to you. Cheerio. Massive thank you there to David Richards for taking the time to join us for pretty much a full episode looking back at BAR and Jensen Button in 2004. But Scott and I aren't quite finished. And Scott, let's just quickly look at that Honda decision to take over the team or at this point to buy 45% and to tell David that his job was done and they were moving him on. Do you think they should have let David and his and his team finish the job they'd started? Uh, I think I think that with what they needed to do, I think as David said at the time, his his job was his job was finished. Um, this was year three, wasn't it? I think so. Bar's lifespan, I think, fits quite neatly into BD, WD, and AD before David, with David, and after David. Um, 
And the growth across his tenure was obvious, um, so much so that a five-year plan was was ticked off early. Uh, that, that, look, he, he secured the team's future, which really can't be underestimated when you consider that the owner and sponsor would have no means to tout its wares from 2006 onwards with no tobacco advertising. You know, that's absolutely crucial. And a year later, Honda would take over completely anyway. And to be honest, I think this version of history reflects really well on David and ProDrive. Honda as a company, David talked about this loads during the podcast, it was getting more control and then full control. And we saw how it ended. And as David said, and we've said on countless sort of iterations of our content, uh, Honda can get a bit political. It can be a bit culture clashing and it can ultimately be a bit underwhelming. Um, I'm not really sure a change in management would have altered the path that Honda was heading on. Uh, in the same amount of time David and his colleagues had turned the team's fortunes around, suddenly it was back to producing a shed again. Um, so it, it took Honda to leave, Braun to take over, Mercedes to come in, serious investment and a totally different engine rule set and quite a big culture shift within Brackley to get that team back on track again. And there's probably no bigger compliment than the decline than the fact that the decline started once David's job had finished. Yeah, and actually, if you do want to hear more about how Mercedes turned itself into the juggernaut that it is today. Uh, Scott stole Bring Back V10's uh, format for uh, an episode of the Race F1 podcast last year where they he did an origin story of Mercedes dominance. And uh, it's a really worthwhile listen. And unfortunately, my legal action on behalf of Bring Back V10's for uh, ripping our format was unsuccessful. So it's still in the feed. But let's finish up with one last look at how Button came out of all this in 2004. Because this year was the making of him on track, and he didn't know it at the time, but that CRB decision was perhaps the making of his career. We'll cover the 2005 version of the Jensen-Button contract saga in the future. David did allude to that earlier. But a spoiler alert for that is that the roles were reversed, and he ended up in a legal battle to get out of a Williams deal for 2006, because he wanted to stay at BAR. Now, in November 2004, he gave an interview to The Guardian where he admitted to making some mistakes in the way he handled trying to move to Williams. He said, in my reasoning for moving, I don't think I made a mistake, but in not talking to David myself, I was misguided. I've never been in this situation before. I don't know the legal side of things, so I just had to listen to what people had to say. I did that, and I thought it was the correct thing to do, but obviously it wasn't. It's been very tiring. I'm staying with BAR next year, and now the decision has been made, I'm actually very happy. Honda having a stake in the team is the best thing for BAR. It's huge for everyone working here. So Scott, we, we did talk about this a bit with David as well. Do you think Jensen was just an innocent victim in all this and was badly advised, or do you think he learned some lessons as well about how to conduct himself? Yeah, I think this was probably very valuable for, uh, for for Jensen. I think it it taught him to look a little bit more globally at the picture and sort of have a little bit more influence over his own dis- decision-making. Who knows, may, maybe that kind of uh, experience was, was, was essential for the, the decision he would make a few years later when he opted to abandon the team he would win the title with in Braun and, and, and go and take on Hamilton in, uh, in, in inside McLaren. Um, I think his uh, his development as a, as a as a driver on track and off track owes a lot to that 2004 season with BAR um, and just sort of that BAR environment as a whole. And looking at those two things we outlined that kind of defined what happened to Jensen after that, which one 
was more significant over what happened to him over the rest of a decade that he would end as world champion? Do you think it was his development as a front-running driver on track or simply avoiding spending what turned out to be the pre-Braun years driving for a Williams team that was in decline? Uh, well, I was going to pick up some splinters and sit on the fence over this question <laughs> um, because it's quite difficult to say. But I'm going to lean towards avoiding the Williams move because, as I said, I do think that staying with BAR was essential to, to that development. I don't think he would necessarily have become the front-running driver on track. He established himself as consistently had he moved elsewhere. You know, if he'd, li- if he'd left BAR and not sat through the misery of the later Honda years, he wouldn't have been in a position to benefit from the Braun transformation and had the career options that he had after that. So it's hard to see how the Williams path would have led to greener greener pastures than that. And more importantly, I think he did blossom with BAR. Um, let's imagine that Jensen left, he drove for Williams, and somehow returned for that 2009 Braun season. Is he the same level as he was in reality? I'm, I'm really not sure he, he would be. And the reason I say that is probably rooted in the self-awareness program that we talked about at the very beginning. Um, Fair play to Jensen for eventually buying into that and maybe to DR for banging his head into the table over their pub pub lunch to make it happen. Um, If he hadn't, I'd imagine there was an entire level of Grand Prix driver that Jensen wouldn't have even known existed or had access to, or he'd have discovered it too late at the wrong point of his career. If If you look at someone like Lewis Hamilton today, still evolving, still tweaking their working methods, still motivating the team in the garage and at the factory, Without BAR, there's a really strong chance Jensen would have missed out on refining those vital areas of his skill set out of the car. And he'd probably have remained a limited driver instead of the one who ultimately definitely fulfilled his potential. Well, if we talk about Jensen Button and Braun any longer, we're going to be back to a second episode of Bring Back V8s. But there's a special one of those in in the feed for anyone who missed it before Christmas. That's it, though, for Jensen Button in 2004. That contract saga has been regularly requested uh, from many of our listeners since the beginning of Bring Back V10s. So I hope we did it justice, as well as looking at what a positive year it was for him on track. Thank you again to David for joining us to give the inside story from BAR's perspective. And thanks to Scott as well, uh, despite his lack of contribution at the time. Don't forget to start getting your questions in already for our series finale. Remember to ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005 using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined and throw a question to us there. That's Series 3 up and running now and next week we'll be back with Episode 2 where we look back on Michael Schumacher's greatest drive behind the wheel of a Benetton, the 1995 European Grand Prix.